Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. How are you doing tonight? Doing good? Awesome. Well, this is a really, really exciting night um, because the Packers are playing right now, the Kansas City Chiefs. So there may be a live football game going on, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it off. I'm going to turn it off just so you guys know. I'm giving you guys my full undivided attention. I'm not even asking you to do the same. Just if you holler in the middle of a service, I'm going to pretend that I'm preaching good. Uh, uh, let's just let's turn my mic down just, just a smidge so it gives me some room to, to yell a little bit. Um, very cool. You guys, if you have a Bible, you can take that out. And the reason we do that is um, I just don't think I'm, I'm smart enough to hold your attention for the next 30 minutes or so, but I believe God's Word definitely is. And so anything that we're going to be talking about as we're just diving into the third week of this series, um, finding the life of your love, and tonight is part two of talking about marriage. Wanted to make sure that we, these aren't just good ideas or bad ideas that I've come up with, but all of these things, we want to be grounded in scripture. And so if you do not have a Bible, if you're interested in who Jesus is, um, as many of you guys are, some of you guys have been, have just decided recently to follow Jesus. And uh, there are some brown bags as you leave that have Bibles in them, a couple books that you guys can start reading. And we'd love for you guys to kickstart a journey and let us know how that's going and how we can partner with you in that. Um, but we will be diving into this. If you do not have a Bible, there's also some scriptures that are going to be on the screen. Uh, like we mentioned, this is kind of, we're picking up in the middle of a conversation. You're always welcome to go back on our podcast to catch up. Uh, we we kick-started the, the series of unpacking the greatness of love. That love is the end goal of every relationship that we have. But in order to, to define love, uh, to understand it as this self-giving force, as the disadvantaging of oneself or the advantage of another, right? Willing the good of another above your own, this idea that we see perfectly in Jesus. Uh, in order to understand that kind of love, we have to understand that the greatest enemy of love is our self-centeredness and that we need to address it as a problem. But the greatest example of love that we have is the cross, But we don't just have the greatest enemy and the greatest example, but we have the Holy Spirit who is our empower to love uh, others well. And so that's kind of how we kicked off the series. That's foundational for everything we're going to be talking about. And last week, we started talking about marriage. And we started talking about that within the metaphor of a garden, because that's where the first marriage takes place. And we got to our first point and not to the other four points. So we're going to, we did it this morning. We're going to try and tackle the rest of the four points tonight. Uh, And as we kind of travel through this metaphor of a garden, these five points are this. That any healthy marriage has to have and understand the soil of covenant, which is what we talked about last week, the roots of friendship, the branches of our unique roles within marriage, the fruit of love, and the fragrance of grace. And when those five things are working together, that begins to produce a picture of marriage that reflects the same marriage that Jesus promises us, his church. And so in order for us to to get on with these other four points, just to recap what we talked about last week, the idea of the soil of covenant, is Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, says that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, or the word is cleaved to his wife in some of your Bibles, and they became one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And that Hebrew idea of cleaving 
is the very first picture in scripture we see of covenant. It is this mending, fusing together where there's no longer two, it's just one. And the reason why covenant seems like a foreign word is because it's a foreign concept. We don't really have covenants, we have contracts. And contracts are transactional. They can be stepped in and stepped out of based on the people follower. Covenant is, I'm just here. No matter what, for sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, for better, for worse, I'm yours. And we don't really have a lot of context for that in our culture because we've really moved away from that. The closest thing we have to a covenant relationship would be between parent and children, right? No matter how bad my kids get, I'm still there, right? I'm still gonna feed them, I'm still gonna change their diapers, I'm still gonna walk with them. That's probably our most accurate picture of a covenant, but God did not intend for a covenant relationship to be only between parents and children. He first designed it to be between husbands and wives. And we have really drastically moved away from that. But the reason, and when we talk about the idea of covenant, it has this temptation to all of a sudden start feeling like, oh, that's, that seems intense, or maybe it's too much. What if I don't want to go into TV? I, I would like to, to lay before you that covenant is not something that is frightening. It's something that's liberating. Because covenant is the only container It's the only safe enough place for you to actually be fully known. Because if you think you're in a transactional relationship, if you're dating, if you are even living together, there's this sense of if I mess up too much, uh, they're out. Or if they mess up too much, I'm out. Covenant's the only place where you are allowed to put your guard down enough to be fully human. But then there's this other part that becomes quite frightening is, we desire to be fully loved in that moment. Tim Keller says it like this, to be loved and not known is comforting but superficial. To be fully known and not loved is our greatest fear. And to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It's covenant. The only place where that can take place is in a relationship like that. It's when God promises himself to us that no matter what, we will never be separated from his love. There's nothing we could do that could remove us from the extent of his grace. And he desires that same sort of profound relationship within marriage. Matter of fact, he goes as far to think so highly of marriage that that's where Jesus does his first miracle, not just because he loves marriage, but because marriage is actually the picture we have at the end of the scriptures, not just the beginning, but in Revelations chapter 19, the story concludes, it crescendos at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is God loves covenant because that's his love towards us. He's not going anywhere. Revelations 19 uh, verse six describes it like this. Then, John speaking, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. I mean, this is it. This is the grand finale of Scripture, is a wedding. It's the fulfillment of a covenant relationship. He continues, for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So um, we're gonna gonna move on here tonight, but I wanted to make sure that we at least understood when we talk about healthy marriage, it has to begin with the soil of covenant. This 
counterculture commitment to one another no matter what. I'm choosing to love you. And based within the soil of friendship is where roots begin to grow of, I'm sorry, soil of covenant is the roots begin to grow of friendship. Um, one of the things I love most about Jen and I's relationship was our, our first year we knew each other, we had a forced friendship. Anyone ever had one of those before? Ours was a forced friendship because when I got to this little Bible college in LA, she was a senior. And if you can imagine her walking around the campus, there was this glow about her, this essence that everyone, it was like Snow White with the animals. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? People would just come and like eat out of her hand. And it was like watching this angel move about our campus. And then I, and I showed up as a freshman, not a senior, just gotten off tour, super grungy kids, still wearing braces, no car, right? no job. I'm every dad's worst nightmare for his daughter. But fortunate for me, uh, one of the most amazing traits about Jen is she has this profound, compelling sense of compassion that drives her. Whenever she sees a stray animal, she has to go and rescue it. Whenever she sees a fallen apart piece of furniture on the side of the road, she has to, she has to make it better. And then she's found me, her greatest work yet. <laughs> And she knew, she's like, yeah, I could, I could do a number on this guy. And so I didn't know what was happening to me. All I knew is the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen, who's way out of my league, was hanging out with me. And so we, but, but even though we started hanging out, we both knew we would never date because I was so out of her league. And so um, it took about a year for us both to actually kind of realize, oh, oh, maybe this could work. And, you know, 13 years into marriage, obviously it's been an an amazing ride and God breathed. But there was this year where we had no other option but then just be like, the best we could do is just be friends because there's no way she should be with me. And as I look at our marriage now, I actually cherish that year so much because it reminds me more of our marriage than our dating relationship did. Because when, you're, when you begin a dating relationship, you lead with infatuation. Infatuation is a powerful, powerful momentum-building thing because it makes you put your best foot forward, but you don't even know you're doing it. You just think you're being you. You're not you. You're not that great, right? <laughs> They're just that powerful that makes you assume that you're that great, and they're fooled into thinking that. And about like nine months to two years around that margin, all of a sudden you're just like, oh man, they realize it and you realize it. Like, oh, you're just another flawed human being, like everyone else. But friendship is different. Friendship is this space similar to covenant, but it's this place where you have the right to be human. And, And that, as I look at our marriage, that's where our marriage has flourished the most is when we have cultivated friendship. Looking back to Genesis chapter two, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Verse 18 says, then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Later after Eve's created, he said, this is my bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. This is the best friend you've ever given me, right? There's no romantic implications yet. That comes later, But it's this idea of partnership and union and camaraderie. I've been missing someone and they're here. This deep-rooted friendship, which is a a massive literary turn because if you look one chapter before, the very first chapter of the Bible, there is a Hebrew poem 
where the author begins to start talking about the work, the creative work of God. And he does it in these refrains, God created and it was good. God created and it was good. It was good, it was good. And, and then it ends with the, the creation of man and woman and he says, it is very good. And you read a few verses later, the Lord said, it is not good that man is alone. This immediately would have drawn the, the attention of the early listeners or readers that something's changing. And what wasn't good in the midst of a beautiful creation is that we were made for each other. There is this sense of companionship that was designed deep within our soul. The writer of Proverbs says it like this in chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, which again, we may or may not have good relationships with our brothers. In ancient agrarian cultures, your brother was your closest person. What's interesting is that word sticks closer than brother. The word sticks is the same word for cleave we have in Genesis 2. And I don't think it's coincidental that the author of Hebrews is borrowing from the very first marriage to describe friendship. This is what friendship looks like. It looks like cleaving. And this is where we're introduced to this idea of how powerful friendship can be within marriage. Dr. Um, John Gottman is a very prominent, famous um, uh, person who studied psychology and became famous because of his massive research that he did on couples over decades. And while he, he compiled all of his research, and now there's schools and institutes that teach his stuff, it's, it's pretty brilliant. But he became famous by discovering this thing called positive sentiment override. Now, positive sentiment override was the, the collection of findings that Gottman found that the common denominator between all marriages that last is they have this thing called PSO, positive sentiment override. And what that means is that these marriages that last, some of them were rocky, some of them were smooth, some of them yelled, some of them were quiet, some were extroverted, introverted, all different cultures. The only common denominator is they had this neurological disposition that said, this is good. Even when things are bad, this is good. And what he discovered is that positive sentiment override took place within friendship. If friendship was cultivated, then you would begin to start having the sense of no matter how bad things get, I know that it'll get better because I have this thing to hold on to. And there's three things that he found that helped develop that friendship, that, po that PSO, that positive sentiment override. Number one is he calls it building love maps or describes it's just you have to get to know your spouse. You have to know who they are. The second thing he discovers is that you have to share fondness. You have to build memories with them. You have to have these encouraging images and memories in your mind and your heart. And thirdly, you have to choose to turn toward instead of away. So let's just, let's just kind of dive into these three discoveries that Gottman found and realize that maybe he didn't discover them. Maybe they were in the scriptures all along. Uh, number one, this idea of learning your spouse. I love that idea, um, but we didn't come up with that. Jesus came up with that idea when he decided to come to earth, leave his heavenly throne, and through the incarnation, get to know each and every one of us. So we have a God that doesn't just sit up in a throne of heaven saying like, hey, I hope you guys figure this out. Hebrews 4 says we have a God who can sympathize with us at every single level. He gets us. He, he learned us. You've had a bad day, he's had a bad day. You've experienced betrayal, so has he. 
You've experienced loss. He's experienced loss. He's experienced joy. There's not an element of our human life that Jesus can look at us and say, I know what that's like. He took the time to learn us. This is, this is an encouragement to us when it comes within the confines of marriage. How are you going to get to know your spouse? So here's, here's just a couple of things that have helped Jen and I, just nuts and bolts, super practical. How do you get to know your spouse? So here's, here's just a few. Uh, Gary Chapman wrote a book a few years ago that's become super famous called The Five Love Languages. I still think it's one of the greatest books that I've read. And he describes these five ways we give and receive love. These are the five, if you've never heard of them before. Words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, quality time, and physical touch. Uh, as I read that list, you might come, there might be a couple that you're like, oh, that's totally me. I'm a quality time person. Any quality time people are like, man, just give me a cup of coffee and a couple hours and my love tank is filled. Uh, some of you guys are gifts. I mean, oh man, the perfect thoughtful gift. It just makes you feel so full. And, and we, we all kind of have these ones like we kind of gravitate towards. And so trying to be a good husband, trying to learn my wife and build those love maps. I look at Jen one date night a few years ago, and I'm like, I'm like, tell me, what, what are your love languages, Jen? How do you receive love? What, what's your top, and what's your love language? She looks at me without even blinking. She goes, all of them. <laughs> it's, true, it's very true. And <laughs> what I actually found is, although we might cling to some of these or lean towards one of these, don't we all want these? Well, at some level, we crave this. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, Jesus did not just become partially human, he became fully human. Learn your spouse, right? What, what makes them give and receive love? Another thing that's been really helpful for Jen and I is recently we've kind of dove into the, the kind of the, the trend of the Enneagram. Any Enneagram fans in here? You guys kind of dove into that a little bit. Um, I was a little skeptical of it because it just seemed like pop culture psychology. Um, but interestingly enough for me, and this may not be your experience, I've never discovered a, a tool that has been more helpful in figuring out who I am. It's been actually pretty life-changing for me. So just a little tidbit, now we're going to do an Enneagram uh, conference right now, but just so you know a little bit about Jen and I, I found out I'm a type 9, and there's nine different types in the Enneagram, and the type 9 is driven by the pursuit of peace. It's my primary motivator, meaning when I lead, I lead through the lens of trying to maintain peace. When I have relationships in my marriage, I try and maintain peace. With my kids, I'm, trying, I'm constantly trying to get them to stop arguing because I want harmony in my, in my house. This is my primary motivator. Well, Jen is a type four, and so that means that she's an original, right? She's a romantic. She's an artist. And so her greatest driver in life is significance. She wants originality. She doesn't want to do anything that's ever repeated. She wants it to be completely unique. Now, you can start to imagine how the weather system that's brewing here because here's my lovely wife and she has this this deep sense of feeling and even moments that it might feel low for her and this sense of chaos but she knows that it's it's birthing in her something beautiful and significant and original and I'm over here and I'm like oh are you okay honey like we should and I'm just trying my best not to say anything that's gonna rock the boat. And she's like, I love the boat, you know? And she's like, send the waves. And I'm like, calm the waves. And all of a sudden, we have the root of every argument we've had where she's like, or, and she's like, why do you always say the right thing? I'm like, well, I don't wanna make you mad. She's like, I just want you to be real with me. I'm like, but being real is scary because I wanna be peaceful. 
But the more I'm learning Zen, the more I'm realizing, oh, the best way I can love my wife is to meet her there. Is that, oh, okay, I can enter into a, a deeper place with Jen, even if it's uncomfortable for me, because that's what love is, isn't it? It's self-giving, not self-centered. It doesn't mean that I become a four. It means that I love my wife, who's a type four, by entering into that. A couple other ones. Uh, Myers-Briggs is phenomenal. We've used that tool within our leadership for years. Strengths finders. Uh, and, and again, you, you can research a, a bunch. But the idea is uh, learn who you have God has put in your life with. I remember sitting at a seminar with two PhD professors from Pepperdine. And both, they've been, they're both in their 70s, been married for 50 years. And they're being interviewed on this panel. And they, they talked to them. They said, and they asked the husband, what's the most important thing that we need to know today about marriage? And he takes a moment, he pauses, and he's, at this point he's talking really slow and thoughtful. And he says, get a PhD in your spouse. He says, become the world's leading expert on them. And that, that little statement has kind of changed my life because at that moment, I really believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I decided I'm gonna become the world's leading expert in Jen. Now, she's a type four, so that, she lets me know I will never figure her out, ever. But it doesn't mean I can't try. It doesn't mean that I can't continue to learn who she is. And, and by, by the way, you'll never arrive because we never stop changing. Right? We, there's this thing within us that I, Jen is not the same person that I married, and I'm not the same person that Jen married. So even though I may have known Jen as a 22 and 20-year-old, she's different now. I'm different now. So it's this continual posture of getting to learn each other. James 1, verse 19 says this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Be slow, I'm sorry, everyone should be quick to listen. Learn. Slow to speak and slow to become angry. I just think if every relationship had that at its core mantra, the relationships in our life would be so much more richer flourishing so much more. And before we move on to this next part of of understanding the the roots of our friendship, I just want to issue a a small warning. When you start to study your spouse, when you begin to start learning about the Enneagram and Myers-Briggs and and all of these things, love languages, uh, you have two options that will present themselves to you. The first option is you will become keenly aware of just how different you are from the person that you married. And in that moment of, moment of understanding the uniquenesses and the differences, you will have the temptation to compare. And I want you to hear me. Comparison is a poison for marriage. You will have this opportunity to say, man, if my spouse was a different type, a different personality, if my spouse received love the way I gave him, this would just be so much easier And that thought can turn into, well, maybe there is someone else. And I would just want to just very quickly just say, would the learning of your spouse not lead you to comparison but to celebration? Learn your spouse not to compare but to celebrate, to figure out who he is or who she is and to thank God they're not like you. Because if they were like you, two things would happen. Number one, you would have less opportunity and motivation to love. And secondly, you would be a less forceful kingdom presence in the world. We need, God knew what he was doing when he placed people together that were different and got each other's nerves because he knew it would produce love in us if we let it. 
And you know it would produce a greater kingdom impact if we let it. And so just an encouragement to you, as you learn your spouse, let it fuel your love, not quench it. Number two, what Godman says is that we ought to build fond memories. And I'm going to summarize it in my way. Have fun. If you're taking notes, just big circle around that one. Just have fun. If you're married, when's the last time you just went and enjoyed and did something together? Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. The, the word rejoice in Hebrew is this word samak, and it literally means have or laugh, have fun, be glad, be joyful in the wife of your youth, the husband of you, the one who you got married to. When you were too young and dumb to realize what you were doing, they're there next to you in covenant for the rest of your life. Have fun, rejoice, samak, enjoy one another, have gladness of heart. Uh, what this looks like for Jen and I is just this really profound thing I would like to just, it's called ping pong. <laughs> if you've been to our house, you know that in, our, in the midst of our messy garage, there is this beautiful altar of a ping pong table where we keep this place sacred because that's where we have fun. It's not the, and Jen pointed out, it's not the only place uh, that we have fun, but for us, it's just this place uh, that we get to go and like, it's been a crazy day, kids have been wild, and we're just gonna, we're just gonna go and she's gonna beat me in ping pong. And then I'm gonna beat her in ping pong, and then she's gonna probably beat me again because she's a little bit better than me. But it's that space for us that it just reminds us of, honestly, like that, that space of like, oh, this, was, this is where our relationship was birthed out of. And if you're like, man, I don't, me and my spouse don't have anything in common, um, I dare you to figure out what you do. Some of you guys know, like, well, I'm outdoors, she's indoors, right? Netflix, Amazon Prime. I mean, like, so, I mean, Lakers, Clippers. I don't know what your thing is. And you're just like, oh, I don't understand. You know, old Kanye, new Kanye. I don't know <laughs> what your thing is. But what I would encourage you is there's got to be something that you can be like, this brings joy to our hearts, okay? And find that out and dive into it. And lastly, under Gottman's research, but also under what's obviously been spoken in Scripture for thousands of years, turn toward, not away. I love that wording. It's the wording of repentance. So what repentance means, turn. Turn toward, not away. You see, when we repent, we're not only turning away from sin, we're turning to, toward God. When we repent to our spouse, we're not just turning from our sin, we're turning towards our spouse. Turn toward them. And that's, that summarizes, again, just briefly, just some ideas of how to grow roots of friendship within your marriage. Thirdly, let's talk about the branches of our unique roles. Now, this can be some, some murky water to tread into because I know this can be some flags that get raised when you start talking about roles within marriage or in gender roles specifically. But before we talk about how we're created different, I would like to point out something that might even be more shocking, and this is how we are the same. Not only shocking for us, but I would like for you to take a moment to imagine the ancient culture that would have heard these words. First off, we're going to read a letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, which is in the height of the Greco-Roman Hellenistic period that highly favored men and degraded women. They did this by giving men any right they wanted to divorce, but women, if they were widowed or divorced, would be taxed. Men were allowed to sleep with whoever they wanted, while women, if they were caught sleeping would, with someone else, would be executed. Can you, you can imagine how awful things were in that time. And Paul writes them this letter and opens up his little chat on marriage with these words. Now, again, keep that cultural context in mind as you read this, when he says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Guys, this would have been earth-shattering. As he talks to husbands, husbands, submit to your wives. I don't know, I've never heard a sermon in the church about husbands submitting to your wives. But according to this verse, submission is not the role of a wife, it's the role of a Christian. It, that's how we're the same. Does the wife have a role to submit to her husbands? Yeah, because she's a Christian. But I have a role to submit to Jen. According to this verse, which is the, the pinnacle verse of the entire section on marriage, we tend to skip it. It's understanding that we are the same because we are both invited into mutual submission. But let me read you a maybe even more shocking verse of how we're the same. This takes place in the very first page of scripture in Genesis chapter one. When the, the culture was even worse, more primitive and more barbaric, the women were not only degraded, they were treated as property. And in the midst of that kind of culture, when Genesis was written, we hear a different narrative come to birth. In verse 26 says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Let's skip down to verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. In the opening lines of scripture, not only does it give the dignity, the, really the, the divine image to both men and women, but it also gives them both the role to rule within, within the kingdom of God. Now, the idea of attaching women to rulership in that ancient culture would have been earth-shattering. Again, in our culture, we praise it as we should because I believe we're closer to the heart of God than further. But in that culture, that would have been shocking. But this is not only a part of Scripture. This is the opening lines of Scripture. God created men and women in his likeness to rule together. So before we talk about our uniquenesses, let's just make, this sure, make sure of this. We have an equal amount of value and divine dignity that we carry that leads us both to mutual submission. Okay, got that? Now let's talk about some uniquenesses. But before we can talk about some uniquenesses, I wanted to let you know the lens that we're gonna look through when we talk about the unique roles we play. And that lens we're gonna look through is the lens called the Trinity. So whenever there's something that just comes up like, oh man, what do you mean there's unique roles within marriage? I, I would lead with the question, are not there unique roles within the Trinity? And yet they're completely one. They're completely submitted to one another. Uh, Timothy Keller calls this the dance, right? Where the father is honoring to the son and the son is submitted to the father and the, and the spirit is submitted to the son. It is this incredible movement that is so self-giving that it becomes one. This is the one God that we worship is made up of these three persons. And this is the lens that we look at. So if there's ever a moment when I talk about or anyone else, a book or a podcast, and you start being like, well, it seems like they got the better roles than I did. All, all I would just say is, listen, the Trinity is our picture. The Trinity has absolute oneness in value and power and authority and origin, yet they have these unique roles that they all play. And we don't have the time tonight to dive into what those roles are, um, I can send you some resources if you want to shoot me an email about some people who do a great job of that. I would like to just touch base on one. And in my opinion, the first that we see in scripture, uh, we are given a word for Eve and we are given a poor example by Adam. And both of these give us a little bit of context of where do we begin the conversation of unique roles within marriage. And so let's begin with Eve. Genesis 2.18 says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a 
helper suitable for him. Now, right away, red flag, what do you mean? A woman's a, help, a helper, helpmate? I don't like that. Um, totally understandable because I think it's an awful translation. Because the Hebrew word here, here is the word azer, and the word azer is used for women here and one other time in the Old Testament, but it's used 16 times for God in the Old Testament, and it's used three times for a military outfit that's about to rescue someone. So I just I want to have that kind of in our mind when we talk about women's unique role here, because if that's the case, if this word is predominantly not used for women, but it's used for God, if, again, and again, I'm not a woman, but if, if that feels uncomfortable for you to wear that role, please understand this, that God wears that role proudly. It's a role of rescue. When God is an Azar, he's a rescuer. Every time. This is also the title that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 and 16. He's, the, he's our helper. These are proud roles for God to walk in. And, it, and if that still feels a little off-putting to you, more often than not, it's not used for women, it's actually used for thousands of military men. Think about that. One woman is a helper. Thousands of men in the military is a helper. And so there is a sense of, even with that, this strong, dignified, rescuing force that is given to that. I want to read you, this might be a little bit heady, but stick with me here. John Watson's commentary on this, I think, is helpful. It says, the word helper is common enough as a description of someone who comes to the aid or provides a service for someone. It carries no implications regarding the relationship or relative status of the individual involved. In fact, the noun form of the word found in this verse as are used, as used elsewhere refers almost exclusively to God as the one who helps his people. If we expand our investigation to verbal forms, we find a continuing predominance of God as the subject. Though there are a handful of occurrences where people help people, in this category we find people helping their neighbor or relatives, people helping a political alliance or coalition, and military reinforcements. Nothing suggests a subservient status of the one helping. In fact, the opposite is more likely. Certainly, listen to this last line, helper cannot be understood as the opposite or complement of leader. And this is where I think we get it wrong. Helper does not mean that you are subservient to a leader. Helper, according to what, the, again, the holistic biblical view, is not underneath or above a leader. They're both lead, right? They both, but according to this, this helper is a strong, significant, divine rescuing force. Um, I don't know about you. I think that's a great place to start. I think about my wife, and I think that's totally her. My wife's in there. Not, not because she, she does all the chores at home, and I sit down and watch the Packers win. Or, I mean, and sadly, that's kind of what's been kind of put out of the mouth of the church for quite some time. My wife's a, an Azare because when someone comes against me, something comes against me, my wife comes alongside me and adds a strength to my life that I could never imagine without it. When my children are in trouble, my wife comes to their aid, not just with a how can I fix it, but with a strengthening power that they desperately need. My wife steps into that role with, with, with pride and strength because that's who she is, that's how God made her to be. 
But man's example here is not a word, it's just a failed example that we begin to start understanding what's his unique role in this story. Genesis chapter three is when we have what we call the fall. This is when sin enters the world, brokenness enters the world. If you ever have questions of why is there sickness and death and injustice, it can all be stemmed back to chapter three when this perfect paradise was disrupted by the the brokenness of humanity and the self-centeredness in humanity's choice. I want us to pay attention closely to Adam because it's within Adam's misexample that I think we can start gaining clues for what was God's original intent for Adam and for husbands in general. So listen to this. Verse six says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, listen to this, who was with her and he ate it. So, Strike number one, Adam, okay? Strike number one is this. Before Eve was ever created, Adam was given the instruction not to eat of the fruit. Not Eve and Adam, Adam alone, which means Adam had a job to communicate that to Eve. So here comes a talking snake. I mean, red flag number one, right? Kill that thing. But, and he comes and talks to his wife. Adam knows the instruction. The instruction says, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And Adam, while watching his wife converse with this serpent, takes a bite and stands there and watches and there's two things going on in his mind. Number one, let's see if she dies. And since she doesn't die, he makes the conclusion, well, I'll eat it too. And so rather than protecting his wife, he makes her go first. And because she doesn't die, he gladly partakes. And it it gets worse from here. Verse seven, notice this. After Adam ate it, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Isn't that fascinating? Eve's eyes were not opened after she ate the fruit. Eve's eyes were opened after Adam ate the fruit. This is our first clue into what's Adam's unique role here. His unique role is a self-sacrificing, protective role that God gave him that he failed at. He said, here, you, you go first. You eat that fruit first. Let me see what happens to you. Oh, okay, you're still alive? I'll eat that too. And in that moment, both of them reap the consequence because it was his job to protect her, to lay down his life. And the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, no surprise, right? Where are you? In the Hebrew, that word you is singular. He's not asking for Adam and Eve, he's asking for Adam. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, let's just stop right here. Adam has a moment. He has a moment to step into his God-given unique role that was given to him from the very beginning of creation. And that role should have been a self-sacrificing, protective presence for his wife. And if he would have fulfilled his role, he would have stepped in front of his wife and said, please forgive her. She didn't know what she was doing. It was my job to protect her. I'll take the consequence. 
And the reason I believe that is I heard years ago Jack Hayford, this prominent theologian and pastor, say that's exactly what Christ did for us. And Paul references that Jesus is the new Adam. Why did Jesus have to come? Because Adam failed. Adam failed to step into his God-given role as a man to say, hey, don't, don't worry about her. It was my bad. And Jesus looks at his bride. He looks at us and he says to his father, hey, don't look at them. I'll take their sin on for me. You can give me the wrath and the consequence that they deserve. And so Jesus became the second Adam. He stepped into that role that was always Adam's to step into from the beginning. And so let's see what Adam does here. Then the man said, oh, it was the woman you gave me. Beat her, right? Take her, like not me. I'll hide behind her. I mean, there's something inside of me. And again, I'm not like some super macho UFC dude or anything like this, but there's something inside of me that just just makes me so angry because it's a betrayal of his God-given unique role as a man. It was the woman you gave me. You're gonna put her right in front of you to take on the wrath that you deserved. It was your job, Adam. Lay down your life, not hers. This is the second time he's let his wife take the heat for him. Which I think, again, it should awaken us as men that if we're going back to the garden, if the work of the cross was to redeem what has fallen, then for us as men and followers of Jesus, we need to be willing to step in front of our wives to take the bullet. We need to be willing to say over my dead body, is she going to be hurt? And I'm not just talking in a physical sense, I'm talking about in a spiritual sense. I'm talking about in a self-giving, self-sacrificial way that my life should orient itself around the flourishing of my wife, not because I'm great, but because this is what Jesus has done for me. And when I do that, lets my wife flourish. And when I don't, I'm thankful that God has given me not only his Holy Spirit, but an Azair, right? And a helper to come alongside and strengthen me when I'm weak. And you can begin to see if men and women step into these God-given roles, it allows something beautiful to start taking place within marriage. So I think it's gonna be up on the screens. Just, Just a recap here in just a sentence. Wives, press into your God-given strength to be a life-giving, rescuing force in this world and in your marriage. Husbands, press into your God-given example of Christ's sacrificial love towards his bride and do likewise. I believe with all my heart that if, if we embrace the soil of covenant, we dig deep the roots of friendship, we embrace our unique God-given roles, inevitably two things will follow that we don't have time to fully dive into tonight. So I'm just gonna summarize. Number one is we will begin to bear fruit. My marriage, if we do these things, my marriage will bear fruit and that fruit will look like love. Not just love in, in, for a relationship's sake, love for the world's sake. Did you ever notice that Adam and Eve were not only given to one another, they were given a job to do and that job was to garden. The reordering of the world's goods for the flourishing of the environment. I, I've come to know that my marriage flourishes not just when Jen and I have a date night once a week, My marriage flourishes when Jen and I have a common kingdom vision that we're fulfilling. Now, let me give some some specifics here. Jen and I have a common vision, but unique callings. Jen does not have the same assignment or calling that I do. And I do not have the same calling or assignment that, that Jen does. 
We're drastically different. Sometimes they even seem like they're going the opposite direction, but what draws us together is that no matter how much she wants to create and design and make music, no matter how bad I want to study and teach and pastor and counsel, we have this desire to see God's kingdom advance through love. And that common vision propels us forward. And so if you're married, I would just start asking the question, what's your common vision? What's this thing that's propelling your marriage, your relationship forward? Because the end goal of your relationship is not your relationship. The end goal of your marriage, the end goal of that relationship is for the life of the world. The end goal of that relationship is that you would begin to bring love around you to your children if you have them, to your neighborhood, to your community, to your places of work that desperately need a holistic picture. Not perfect people. Please hear me right. It doesn't mean that Jen and I are perfect. We can stand up and I can tell you stories of of moments that we have been um, totally flawed and broken and human to one another. We've hurt each other in deep ways. But at the end of the day, we come back to that God has given us a garden to tend, not just a person to love. And when we tend that garden, fruit will begin to bear in our life. And when we begin to start having an understanding of what that vision is, we will begin to start embracing a deeper level that our marriage would never have if we were just trying to get along. And our fifth point tonight is that if we have the soil of covenant, the roots of friendship, the branches of our unique roles, we're bearing fruit. Inevitably, what will follow is a fragrance of grace. And the reason I want to leave you with this is that it doesn't matter how many books you read, sermons you listen to on marriage, you are still a broken and flawed human being. You will still get on each other's nerves. You will still hurt each other's feelings. You will still wound each other, and at times, deeply. And what your marriage needs is not perfection. It needs grace. You need to be able to look at that person to your right or to your left, that person you wake up next to and say, you know what? In your imperfections, I'm going to respond the same way God has responded to me in my imperfection, and that is with a new mercy every morning. It is with the grace that is solidified on the cross, and I'm going to choose to treat you in the exact same way. And you allow that aroma to start seeping out of your marriage. It doesn't just affect children. It affects cities. It affects everything. Do you guys ever go to California Adventure when they, had, they still had the Calif- Soaring Over California ride? Remember, and you get to over the orange groves and you smell those oranges. You guys know what I'm talking about? And you're just like, the whole time, I'm like, this isn't real. This is fake. And all of a sudden, I smell the oranges. I'm like, now I'm here, right? Like, it's just, there's something about this aroma that just takes you there. And I, and I believe that that same potency, that same intoxication happens with grace. Some of the best practical things you could do after tonight is to go and ask for forgiveness and go extend it is to go look at your spouse who's hurt you or you've hurt them and just say, you know what, I'm choosing forgiveness, choosing grace. I'm letting that to be what comes out of our marriage. And I would just highly, highly encourage you, man, if, if this just becomes your goal, this, this new image of what marriage can be and is and desire, God desires to be, I think it has, a, has powerful implications. You've heard me say this. Encinitas has the highest rate of divorce out of any, count, or out of any town in San Diego. It's a 65%. These, these teachings matter. These scriptures matter because this beautiful strip of 
coast is under siege. Marriage is being attacked, not by political agendas, but because of self-centeredness. Because we need this. We need covenant. We need authentic friendship. We need grace and forgiveness. We need to come back again and again and again to the greatest example of love, which is Jesus Christ on the cross. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. 